Hello and welcome to episode 93 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Russell Carlton. Russell is a regular contributor to Baseball Prospectus and the author of the new book, The Shift, The Next Evolution in Baseball Thinking. You can give him a follow on Twitter at PizzaCutter5. Russell, welcome back to the podcast. Wait, wait, Pizza Cutter 4. Pizza Cutter 4? I got the wrong number. There's there's some other pizza cutter out there who's going to get my follow now. That's <laughs> that's absolutely right. We don't want to get the wrong pizza cutter. It is Pizza Cutter 4. Russell, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> well, Russell, you have a new book out, which is very good, and it's very exciting. Congratulations. I want to talk to you about just how baseball research and analysis has changed since you started. I guess you started about 10 years ago. What's changed? Uh, let's see. I've had kids and I've grown up and I'm a little, oh wait, not in me. Um, in the, in, in, in analysis. Now, I, the thing about the, the sabermetric movement is that, you know, I, I was thinking about this. I, I started writing in March of 2007 and, it's interesting, and I, I was looking at some stuff today, and I realized, you know, back then, we were just trying to figure out, at the time, how to really evaluate players. I mean, we were talking about, we, you know, like the first defensive metrics that were worth anything were really just kind of finding their sea legs, and, you know, war wasn't something that we really had. And we, we were really trying to to figure that out. And now I think that, you know, we've gotten to a point where we have that stuff down and sabermetrics has moved from a phase where it's very descriptive or trying to figure out how to be descriptive of what's going on in the field to where it's being more mm, clinical, I guess, to where we're saying, okay, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that, you know, you have a sleep specialist who would be coming into a major league team to talk about, okay, what's the best way to get players enough rest so that they're performing at the optimal level? Um, to think about how you could fit different parts of a baseball team together to, to extract little bits of value on that, to where you're actually making recommendations rather than just um, ra- rather than just kind of trying to figure out, well, how do we how do we assign value to this guy? And now there's more data than ever too with Statcast. Oh, boy, is there and- ever? It's just so much data being generated. It's a whole team of people that just have to process that data for individual teams. But how do you go about the just sheer amount of information that's available to you? How do you use all that to sort of narrow it down and tackle one specific subject? I think that, you know, and this is another thing I noticed in the past 10 years is that 10 years ago, and I mean, I... I can, I, when I was a kid, you know, when I was your age, Sonny, I was, uh, we didn't even have pitch FX. And I remember that was <laughs> like, literally I was, I was doing stuff pre pitch FX. And, and the thing was that I never really got deep into pitch FX. And I think that was kind of the fissure point where when you were a quote unquote sabermetrician, there was kind of one kind of big ball of sabermetrics and then you got people who came in and really started to specialize, and they really started doing – like you had pitch FX specialists who got deep into pitching and pitch tagging and figuring all that sort of stuff out and who made their name based on that data set. 
And I mean, it's not that they weren't they were unfamiliar with all the other lines of research that were going on, um, or in the same way that you know I didn't really do that, and I had other other lines of research that I was interested in pursuing, and I kept my ears open to what PitchFX was doing, and I still do when, when we we get into you know the Statcast uh, sort of stuff that that's now happening. It's just that you know to be honest with you, there's just too much to try to tackle everything, and so what I have come to realize about myself is that you know I'm going to have certain areas where I can do deep dives into stuff and there's stuff where my skills or my interests just aren't there to where mostly my skills um, aren't just aren't there to really go ahead and do uh, research into certain topics so you know my my interests are in in the human element and psychology that it's a lot of what I wrote the book about and I'm I'm comfortable with you know that's going to be my niche and you know the field has grown to be big enough to where there are now different niches, and I'm I'm cool with that, and I, I think that that's that's kind of another big development. Yeah, there's a lot of data, and there are a lot a lot of other things that would not have been considered data ten years ago that we're turning to and kind of going, oh, well that we could use that as data too, and we can we can try and figure out what what actionable things we can figure out from there. Well, I want to go back beyond 10 years, back to when you and I were kids and the ah, sort yes. of original blueprint of Sabermetrics was being laid by Bill James and John Thorne and Craig Wright. What do you think those guys got wrong? Are there researches or are there things that they did that just in hindsight did not age well? I look back at my own catalog and there's stuff that I wrote that didn't age well either. And I think that it wasn't that... I think that there there was stuff where we didn't have good data and but we thought we had good data and you know when when we talked about clutch hitting for example and we went oh well clutch hitting doesn't exist well no no not really you know kind of or when we went to you know the, the original dips theory that said that pitchers basically have no control over what happens once the ball is hit into play and it's not a walk, a strikeout, or a home run. You know, no, that's sort of true. But you know, you dig deeper and, and you get better data, and you realize that no, that's that's not really true. I mean, it's it's probably more true than false, but there's just so much other gray that you have to really think about in there. So I mean, I think that the mistakes that we made in using the royal we here. The, the mistakes that were made were were more along the lines of thinking that our data were were better than they actually were, and then also assuming that if we couldn't get data on something, that the concept just wasn't important. I mean, we did that with team chemistry for goodness knows how many years, or something like uh, a player's makeup, and that was you know that was stuff that that we largely ignored because it's really hard to get any sort of data on that and i think that was that was the big mistake that even up till i don't know even up till 5 years ago i was making before we get into some of the specific examples you get into in your book i want to ask you about your research on stabilization when numbers start to stabilize. And when you came on the first time, we actually talked about your initial research here. But for those that missed this podcast four years ago, give us a little background on what that research said and what you found. But also, you 
mentioned, or you had a Twitter thread recently that people are misusing that research. So what did the research find and how are people misusing it? Uh, so this goes back to November of 2007. So I'm again feeling very old. Um, but I wrote a, a post at a blog that no longer exists. And it was, I, I was looking to do something very specific. I, I was looking at um, doing research across, kind of across, you know, the whole league, basically. How many plate appearances, or if we're doing pitchers, how many batters faced, should I require a player to have as a minimum to include him in my sample? So, you know, I don't want to include players, for example, who got one plate appearance and got one hit, and so they're batting a thousand. You know, that one thousand is not their actual their actual talent level. We we know that. Um, we don't want to take guys who went at two for five. They're not really four hundred hitters. But you know, once we get up to what a hundred, two hundred, five hundred plate appearances, is that enough? So I wanted to do that for research that I was conducting again across the whole league, with the thought that you know I would have you know, 12 players on each team who get, you know, some minimal number of three uh, 300 plate appearances or so across 30 teams, that's 360 players. And then you could do some interesting correlational research, which at the time would have been really cutting edge stuff. Um, and so I did research on how, how, how much that group would need before you got a good, uh, what I called it, what was called a split half correlation. And I, again, eventually updated the, the math. And the idea was that, okay, well, we know that if you've got – and I'd have to look again at, at that chart, but something like you know, 60 or 70 uh, plate appearances for a strike for strikeout rate is, is kind of one of the ones that, that stabilizes most quickly for, for, uh, for hitters. So I did that. I published it, and it kind of took on a life of its own. Um, and, and one that, you know, I looking back, I – I, I probably just wasn't smart enough to realize what it, that it was getting out of hand in the way that it was. Because what started happening is that every mm, late April, early May, there would come a point where people would start saying, well, you know, so-and-so has gotten to 60 plate appearances, and he's doing a lot better. He's not striking out as much as he was last year. And look, his performance has been really good. I think that so-and-so might actually be better this year. And, you know, and, and, and for a while I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. You know, that's, and, and the more I thought of it, I'm like, you know, this isn't, that, that's not quite that is. And so I, I wrote a Twitter thread, and it was actually the first and only Twitter thread I've ever written. Um, and I said, well, you know, the research was meant to look at a broad swath of players. And it was meant to do to, to get to a point where the correlation between you know these these sixty plate appearances and the next sixty plate appearances are uh, are are close enough are correlated closely enough that we can say okay yeah that's that's a real thing uh, again across a whole group but you know when when you say the correlation is good enough that means there's still room for wacky outliers. And there's also room for – we know that there is room in baseball for players to just get better. The problem is that you're picking the one guy who's, who's, the, the out, who's probably the outlier in some way, either in that he's, he's one of the rare guys who gets better because you figure most players just kind of are doing what they did last year 
or he's a statistical outlier. It's just a weird uh, run of luck. And you know, because if you did a a a story on I don't know all again 360 hitters that are currently in the big leagues, they most of them would read, yeah, he's pretty much doing what he did last year. Yeah, he's pretty much doing what he did last year. Yeah, he's pretty much doing what he did last year. And 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 that is what the original research was really talking about. That phenomenon that you know 80 90 percent of players are just doing what they did last year. But you're gonna pick out the one guy who's having an interesting year and writing about him. And 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 so you're kind of by by definition picking the weird one, the guy who's breaking the rule specifically. But then you're saying that 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 the rule applies to him when he really is the rule breaker in that in that set. And so, you know, obviously if he's having a weird season where he's doing something differently, something's going on. Either he did get better, which is possible, or he's having a really really fluky year, which is also possible. And we have no way of knowing which is which at this point. I mean, we, there's just that research just hasn't been done, at least publicly that I know of. And so I think that the the reflexive use of that old chart, and you'll hear it. Well, research by Russell Carlton says that, well, this is Russell Carlton right here, folks. And I'm telling you, it doesn't work like that. You know, the, the way that it gets used is is exactly the wrong way to use it, and so I I think that you know it it's it's an article that now again looking back has not aged well at least in my mind, and that I think that it, it's time for it to kind of get put back on the shelf and as a little curiosity or just used for what it was originally used for and that's it. Well, it's interesting because a lot of your book is about as a group we want to think this way. But it's also learning how to cater to the individuals within that group as well. And you give different examples of that. And I think that's a big one there, that in general, things may stabilize around this time, but there are always going to be outliers. And I think that gets into some of the things what you were talking about your book, like some teams got a, a bad rap. I mean, the Astros got this rap. No one talks about it anymore since because they won the World Series, that they were all spreadsheets and data-driven and players talked about this publicly how they they felt like they were assets and they weren't being treated like people and Bo Porter their former manager was very critical of how the organization handled things and then you know you win and everybody forgets these things but I, I think that as teams have more and more information and there is a gap between the amount of information that the teams have and what the players actually have access to or what their agents have access to there is more room for that sort of, um, you're just this, that we're going to put you into a spreadsheet because this is what it comes out. This is what the math says. But I think it's crucially important that teams not do that and recognize the individuals as much as they can. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, that's been kind of the critique that, you know, if you are a, a numbers guy or a numbers team, that you're not interested in the human element and 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 some of that, you know, the, the people who think kind of think of themselves, uh, you know, they, they feel like they're being treated as assets. I mean, there is some there is some truth to that, in that you know that 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 baseball is a game of resource allocation, and especially in the front office. And yeah, I mean, but I mean, it, it is it, it's weird because you know it's always been that way. If you did not perform you would not be invited back next year or you would be DFA'd. I mean, it has always been like that and P and 
teams have always tried to um, you know get get something get something over on their their competition. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I think that and something I tried to do in the book is that you know there is a human element to to the game that if you look at the numbers carefully, you can see. Uh, you can you can see specifically you know people making decisions and how you know we all know that people tend to make or t- can make bad decisions well you could start to see that in the book you can take a look at you know some of those issues that i talked about that we wouldn't have talked about 10 years ago with sabermetrics being addressed in analytics departments things about you know how do we uh nutrition how do we get enough rest how do we um, how do we make sure that our our players are are taken care of in terms of their you know their human development? You know how do we understand um, a player um, coming from uh, another country to the United States, uh, living away from home for the first time in his life, and he he may or may not speak very much English at this point, and now he's in Iowa trying to learn how to hit a curveball, and you know how do we how do we um, how, how how do we reach out to that player and make sure that um, that that he's doing the best that he can, or that he has the most uh, resources around him that he can? Because specifically, we need him to learn how to hit a curveball because we're counting on him to grow into a major league second baseman at some point and to uh, and to provide value at the major league level. So I mean, I think that 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 kind of does cut both ways. That 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 teams, you know. There is a certain point where players are assets, but I think teams are realizing that if they address that human element in an, in an earnest way, that that can also have value on the field. That 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 if you know if we think of players as assets, then it has asset value. You talk in the first chapter. You write in the first chapter of the book about the resistance, especially some of the early resistance among players or among the public to sabermetrics was not necessarily a math thing, but more of a cultural thing. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the the, the math itself, I, I'm, I suppose there's some of that. And, but, you know, once you, if you walk somebody through step by step, and in, and in the book, um, I, I did a, a section on Here's war without the math, really. I mean, here's here's the logic behind it, and if you accept the logic behind war, the math is just an expression of that logic, and it works itself out. And I don't know that you really, really need to know all of the intricacies of how we calculate linear weights in order to appreciate it. I mean, you just you know you just don't at this point. I mean, some people some people will want to go that deep, and that's fine. Um, but but I think that the the initial resistance wasn't so much the math as you know baseball is is a is is in one part a a storytelling uh, uh, endeavor you know we we tell we tell stories about baseball that go back years to, i mean to to the point where you know I, I grew up hearing stories that of course i was not alive for nor was my father alive for when he told them to me you know he would tell me about joe dimaggio and well you know, my dad was born in 1952, and I don't think he ever saw DiMaggio play. And you know, that's the that's the um, you know when we talk about the numbers in baseball, those numbers are then tied to the stories. You know, I bring up in the book if I say the number 56, 
you know what 56 is. You don't, you don't need explanation. You know exactly what that number is. If I say 42, you know what 42 is. And you know there are these numbers that have these stories attached to them. And you know DiMaggio's streak, for example, with 56 is impressive. It certainly, it certainly was a story at the time it was, it was, it was happening. But you know, what about the number 84? Well, 84, and some people out there are going to go, well, I don't know what 84 is. Well, 84 is the number of times or the number of games straight that Ted Williams got on base in 1949. He got on base in 84 straight games. It's the, the record on, on that one. But some of those weren't hits. They were walks. And, you know, it's, it's very strange that, you know, that, that, you know, Ted Williams, who was no slouch himself, doesn't get put into the the annals of history for that one when you know you can argue it's at least as as impressive as DiMaggio's streak um and and it's it's a very weird imbalance so you know there's a certain number there's a certain amount of of uh, of story that goes along with the numbers so when you come along and you say the numbers that you have been looking at for the last 50 60 70 whatever it is years that you've been alive and thinking about baseball. Well, you're basically telling me that my entire storytelling tradition is wrong. And now we're getting into, well, you're telling me that, you know, a giant part of my culture is wrong. And people don't take very well to being told that their entire culture is wrong. You know, and and so I think that was a lot of where it came from. You know, I'm I understand that there is a lot of, of cultural baggage that goes into those numbers, and in the book I say, you know, look, I am, I, I get that and I appreciate that. I would, I would hope that people would say, you know what, I'm just going to turn that part of my brain off for a few moments and take these numbers for what they are. They're just a different way to look at the game of baseball that's divorced from a lot of that cultural baggage that, that goes along with it. And you know that's I think that's if if you can suspend that that for a few moments as you're reading through the book, you kind of go, oh, okay, this all makes sense. And maybe 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 you still like batting average because it's what you grew up with, and that's that's fine. But if you can walk away with an appreciation that okay, well, you know, you look at it a different way, you come to a different conclusion. I I can live with that. Within the chapter on wins above replacement, you talk about how certain things can be worth half a win or half a run, and how it can be confusing if you see a a fielder rob a home run with three runners on base, but that does not count as saving three runs. Right, that's not it, three and runs. that's weird. Yeah. I think that's a weird <laughs> thing for people to get the hang of. But I actually wonder if wins above replacement would have caught on sooner if there were no decimal points in it, if it were whole numbers and it was just sort of like these groups of players and these tiers of players, because I think people have a hard time with that. I think people have a hard time with the half a win or the third of a win, a third of a run or whatever. I think people have a difficulty with that. And I think people have a difficulty not only with the decimal point, I think they have a difficulty with negative values. And I think that's a weird thing to see someone who is like minus one wins above replacement who played 150 games. I think people have a hard time seeing negative values attached to that as well. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's not intuitive to say half a run or that, you know, player X gets credit for half a run. But, you know, you think you take, you, you end up 
saying that, but it's usually out of the context of, oh, and player Y gets credit for the other half of the run. And, you know, usually when I explain this and I say, you know, look, we understand the only way to um, to create value in, in or to create a run by yourself is to hit a home run. And, of course, there are plenty of runs that are scored that are not home runs. Well, that means that somebody did part of the work to get on base – and then somebody else did part of the work, or a couple somebody else's did the rest of the work to to move that player ahead, and then eventually drive him in. And so when you think of it, you've got to you certainly have to give credit for that run to several different people. So that's going to require decimal points. And certainly over you know over the course of a game, you know if the team wins, well, it's certainly not one player who gets all of the credit for the win uh, in any sort of way. Um, so you know we're we're going to chop up the the uh, the credit in some in some fashion, and so I think once you explain it like that, people go, oh okay, I kind of get that. But you start you start getting into you know you mentioned the robbing a three run homer, um, you know there's there's a certain amount of and this is you know a conceit of sabermetrics as well, to where you say you know we're we are interested in in, in kind of statistics that are somewhat separated from the context in which they happen, and sometimes entirely separated from the context in which they happened, and that we seek this ideal, I don't know, platonic form of, of the baseball player, and we know that he made a catch, but we, but we want to somehow divorce it from the fact that it was – um, that there were a couple of runners on, and we just want to focus on the fact that, well, you know, he didn't put those runners on, and he wasn't really responsible for the runners being on because it was the pitcher who walked two guys, and he was just standing out there. So, you know, why is he getting credit? Or so uh, there, there is this, th- this, this part of sabermetrics that really tries to remove the context from the numbers that that it's describing, and that has its benefits. But you know, most people watch the game in the context of what's going on, both you know it, as as a game strategy sort of thing, but also you know in their own lives. You know, in in uh, in you, you you talk about a catch that saved a season. You know, somebody robs a three-run homer in a particularly important game down the stretch, or somebody drops a ball. And that allows the other team to win, and the team loses, and they go on. They they miss the playoffs by a by a, a game, and so you know you start thinking about that. Well, and and yeah, that's kind of that, that's that is how it feels in the moment. But then you know you can also look back and say, well, there were all kinds of catches that were or were not made that turned this game or that game. You know, why is this particular one on this particular day the one that we look at saying that he, it cost them the season? You know, you can think of the one back in April that somebody didn't make. Well, that was a loss too, and that go, went in the L column, and that was just as much a factor in, um, you know, had we won that game, we wouldn't have missed the playoffs as anything else. But that's not how people think about it. They 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 think of it in terms of an, in terms of a narrative arc, and you know, so we think of things that happen more recently as more emotionally salient. You know, that is the disconnect between how people perceive information and as they watch a game, and how how sabermetric how sabermetrics views the unfolding of a baseball game. I, I steal this line from uh, from Dave Cameron, who uh, used to be at Fangraphs and now works for the Padres. And you know, baseball is our uh, our most popular performance art. Or sports is our most popular form, performance art, and well, you know, baseball is the best sport. So, um, 
you know people people look at it in terms of the, the way they look at um, any piece of art that unfolds over a period of time, something like film um, or drama or something like that. And that's more how they're watching. And that's just not how Sabermetrics views the game. And so there's going to be a disconnect there too. Certainly, I think there's room for both, but I wonder if there's room for both in one number. I think that the reason why people think that the the catch that robs the home run in the World Series is more valuable than the one in April is because that game in the World Series, there may not be another game afterwards. And of course, the games in April count as much as the ones in September in the regular season, but there are more games after the ones in April. And it's not that they count differently, but it's, it's to a point where you can go 2-10 and 10 at the beginning of the year, and if you make that up, then you've made it up and you're in. But if you lose your last 10 games at the end of the year, that's going to put you in a really bad place. And I think that the, the lack of games coming after it are actually what trips people up there. And I think it's why people still value save so much. It's because, in theory, there's no other outs. There's no, no room to, to fail when you're a closer. Yeah, and, and, and as the closer, you have to go out there with the understanding that if you mess up, there's nobody who's going to, there is no chance that someone's going to come back behind you and, and save you, especially if you are the, on the visiting team and it's the bottom of the ninth that you have to pitch. And if you, if you cough up the lead here and they take the lead, they win. And, you know, there's no, there's not even, you know, your team gets to bat again and maybe they'll, they'll put up two more runs and, and turn the lead back around to you and you get to spit out the fish hook. You know, you, you have to be ready to do that and to face that, that emotional consequence. And I mean, yeah, I, 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 I can't I, – I, 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 here's – this is just one of those places where, um, where the, the, the way that Sabermetrics looks at the, the, the game of baseball just differs from how people either emotionally or intuitively perceive the game. And I think you're right. I think it's for that exact reason that you know, there is – there just isn't anything after this. And so you know, uh, there, there's a – I think there's a study in football um, that looked at a, a, a situation, and it was if a team is down by 15 points and they score a touchdown, they then have to make the decision as to whether they're going to go for the one-point kick or the two-point conversion. And the, the, it, it turned out that when you look, they almost always go for the one-point kick based on despite the fact that if you think of it logically it makes total sense to go for the two point conversion and people say well if you miss the two point conversion well then you you know you're back down to where it's a two it's a two score game because you're you're then down by nine and so you're going to need two scores in order to win and and somebody said well yeah but you know if you go for the the um, the kick you have to score another touchdown and get a two point conversion there and if you miss that one, well, then you know you you have less time in which you're going to have to get yet another score, and so you have less time to set your strategy with. And th they took they took that to interpret it as uh, coaches in football want to be theoretically in the game for as long as possible, and that's what they're maximizing, rather than thinking it all the way through and kind of going, okay, what's the logically the best way to do it? They want to be in the game for more of the experience that they have during those 60 minutes in the game. And I think that, you know, a lot of 
baseball strategy kind of comes down to that too, where you know even though where the game might uh, make sense to bring in your closer in the eighth inning or the seventh inning, you know there's still that emotional emotional pull to hold him out until the ninth inning, so that you know you can you can kind of say okay we're going to slowly choke off the other team's chances and. Uh, and and again, whether that makes sense or not, from a logical point of view, that is how the human mind works. And so I think that you know uh, it, it is it is a place where both you know people kind of recoil from that, but also you know it's a place where if people are going to act irrationally based on their emotions, then as a good person who's trying to win as many games as possible, whether you like it emotionally or not, uh, that's a chance for me to uh, to, to draw some value. Uh, if I'm willing to, to feel kind of icky about it, but, I, but my strategy is more sound, I'm going to win more games than you. Let's talk about the evolution of clutch, because... Growing up, it was a term you heard all the time. I think we heard. I think we're about the same age. I think that was something we were we we just heard in all sports. We heard it with Larry Bird. We heard it with baseball players. We heard it with everybody. And then, as more and more research got done, specifically research in baseball, it was seemingly clutch is not a thing. Clutch is not real. Players, if given enough opportunity, would perform to their true talent level over time. And that's shifted a little bit. That maybe there is some some element of clutch there. And I never, I'll admit, I never fully bought into the clutch is not a thing argument because I just look at it, I remember for myself, I'm not someone that that is uh, that was particularly good at sports. I was never going to be an athlete, I knew that. But I could hit free throws, right? If I was on a basketball court, I could hit free throws. Until girls came over. If I was at a park and girls <laughs> came over, all of a sudden those free throws became a lot harder to hit. That's clutch. That's nerves. That's getting. That's letting something get to you. And I do think there's a human element there. There's an element of clutch or nerves that can come into a situation, even at the highest level of professional yeah, sports. Yeah, I think that the mistakes that were made, this is a case where I think that the human penchant for, um, to judge things on kind of moralistic grounds really beat back the science in a way that that was detrimental to the sport because for the longest time you heard about players who were clutch hitters and this and 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 it, they didn't just say he's a clutch hitter they said he's a clutch hitter and they got that dreamy look in their eyes and they said it like that and you're kind of like you know you're you, you sound like you know you're 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 talking about a superhero here and you know i, I think that we ignore the emotional lives of players at our own peril. But I think that you have to appreciate that in the same way that players are not kind of random number generators who are stratomatic cards, basically, where they're the same thing over and over and over again, I think you have to appreciate that while there are times when a player is going to be more or less than he was, and maybe that has something to do with the situation, and maybe it has something to do with how he is handling pressure on that specific day, that the even even the idea of how clutch someone is, I think, is a variable 
in the equation, and, and it is a variable, not a, a fixed constant. I don't believe that there are players who are 100% clutch in all situations that, that involve pressure at all times. I think that there are players who, like you say, well, you know, um, the uh, the young ladies came over and you just couldn't hit a free throw for the life of you, and um, you know, it's it, it's it's probably there was something to that. You know, we in psychology we talk about self-referential thinking. Suddenly, you start thinking about yourself and what you're doing instead of just kind of doing the motion, and you um, it it can kind of you know freak you out to where you're. You're kind of analyzing everything that you're doing rather than just kind of relying on muscle memory and, and letting some of that take over. So, I mean, I think that, 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 yes, that can happen. Maybe there are players who are better at it than other times, but it is not some kind of mythical, moralistic quality that people have. It's a skill that some people have in certain situations um, it is probably, if we did enough research on it, there's probably some neurological underpinnings for it and that it can probably be trained and it's probably something that uh, a guy can lose or gain as things go along. Um, but it is not it is not a superhero uh, quality uh, that people have um, that, that kind of suddenly makes them better than they, they had been um, in, in any kind of way that is kind of 100% predictable is the best way I can put it. The prominence of the shift. Your book, by the way, is not specifically about the shift. It's not no, 300 pages it's about... It's not 300 pages about the infield shift, I promise. Yeah, that's good. But you do have a chapter about the shift, and you talk about the, some of the cause and effects of the shift, some of the things that people may not think about that are associated with the shift. But you also talk about, frankly, why batters don't bunt more against the shift. And you had an article up on Baseball Prospectus about Joey Gallo. And uh, Joey Gallo is not just, he's facing some of the most extreme shifts I've ever seen. Four-man outfields, there's no one on the third base side. There's just no one there. He just has to get the ball past the pitcher and get on first base every time if he could do that. Are the shifts working? And how much better would a batter like Joey Gallo be if he did bunt every time he faced the shift? I think that in a weird way, boy, this is going to sound really arrogant. I think everybody's wrong about the shift, except me. No, I, <laughs> where's the arrogance there? I yeah, you know, I I'm just that good. Now, I, I here, here's the thing. I the the shift, and I go over this in the book. I think the shift has we've misevaluated what the shift does, and the the idea being that you know we assumed that the point of the shift was that ground ball that's hit to the second baseman who for some reason is standing in short right field, but it's hit right to him and he throws it to the first baseman and the guy's out four, three. Um, and, and that's, that's what we looked at and that's how we, we judged whether the shift was doing a good job or not. And then, you know, you come and realize, well, what about, you know, are there other side effects of the shift? And it turns out that, you know, some of the research I did in the book showed that you see more balls in front of the shift, ball one, ball two, ball three. And part of that is just how the shifts are recorded. They don't record it a walk if a walk happens in front of the shift. So we have no idea whether walks happen. But we do know the count of the, the, uh, the, the, the balls in play uh, where the ball went into play. 
and there are just more balls in those counts than we would have otherwise expected if we do some you know cross calculating and all that sort of stuff and so i said well you know you can't throw a guy out if he gets to walk to first and so I, I think that there are side effects to the shift. Probably, you know, the pitcher is freaked out a little bit. Maybe he's nibbling a little bit more. Maybe he's just kind of, I don't know about this, he feels uneasy uh, pitching in front of this weird defense. And maybe that's affecting him in some way. And, you know, pitchers writ large. And so I, I think that that's something that nobody thought about. In fact, they don't really, you know, like I said, they don't notate the shift if, it, if a walk happens. They don't, they don't record it in the publicly available data. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering if any value that the shift does as far as, as making ground balls easier to turn into outs, if some of that's being eaten up or all of it's being eaten up by extra walks that are, are issued. So there's, there's that aspect of it, and I, 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 don't, I haven't seen any serious reckoning about, uh, about that line of, of work. Um, but on the flip side, you know, you mentioned, you know, why doesn't uh, Joey Gallo bunter in my book? Why does Why didn't David Ortiz bunt? Um, the reality is that you know I, I've done some the stuff I did at BP. You know I hear oh well you know Gallo of course Gallo's heard this too. Why don't you just bunt? And you know his his thing was well first off it's not that easy which he is correct it's not that easy to to lay down a good bunt. Um, but you know what's weird is that I did the math and I said okay. Let's you know take some averages of what we know about bunting and and what we know about um, how effective the bunt has been against the shift and um, I think it was something like just shy of sixty percent of bunts against the shift went for hits and I looked and I saw that even infrequent bunters make fair contact with a bunt attempt something like forty two percent of the time and. I went and I'm like, okay, so sometimes he would bunt and miss, or he would bunt it foul, or something like that. And sometimes he wouldn't push it all the way past the pitcher, and it would just be a one-three put out. And but I said, okay, let's just assume that he he's kind of average. Sometimes he's going to strike out. Of course, Gal is going to strike out a lot anyway. Um, but sometimes he'll strike out because he'll try to bunt three times and it won't work. Sometimes he'll get. Um, he won't push it past the pitcher. And I said, you know, even if, and I got it down to where if he's kind of league average-ish around these skills, he would be successful about 47% of the time. They'd probably all be singles. But you know what? That's a 470 batting average. That's pretty good. So even th- with the idea that, yeah, it's it's not that easy, well, even if you go up there and you say, I'm going to be I'm this is not going to work more than half the time. It's only going to work 47% of the time. Well, if you can get a single 47% of the time that you're up, that's pretty good. I did the numbers on it and Joey Gallo um kind of using some different formulas was worth something like 20 runs more to the Rangers um if he were to bunt than he was last year. Um, when he hit 40 home runs. But I think that, you know, the, the pride gets in the way of, well, you know, if Gallo is going to bunt, he's certainly not going to home run that way. And I wonder if some of, you know, what's happening with, uh, with that is just, you know, you, you, you get you, the pride just takes away that, that willingness to, to take a look at, well, what's the best way that I can help the team win? And at some point, 
you have to decide, you know, am I here to show that I have the biggest bat here or do I want to help my team win? Lastly, before we wrap it up, what advantage do you think is right in front of teams that they're not taking advantage of? In basketball, teams know that they should be taking more three-pointers. Research keeps pointing to take more three-pointers and take more three-pointers, and some teams are. Obviously, the Warriors have done this, but there are still many teams that aren't doing this. In football, it's don't punt so much, especially when it's fourth and short. Go for it. And really, this hasn't caught on in football. Teams go for it a little bit more on fourth down than they used to, but it's still, there's a big market to be had there and a big gain for a team to actually never punt. What's the big advantage in baseball that teams, it's right there in front of them, that teams just simply aren't taking advantage of at this point? Boy, if I knew the answer to that question, I would be such a, a rich man. I, and, <laughs> I, and, and, and I mean, that, and I say that, you know, I literally, I, if I had a good answer to that, it, I, I could probably sell that to a team for a million dollars. I mean, that is... If you think about, you know, the old, the you know, on the free agent market, a win is worth ten million or whatever it is now, and you know, if I had something that could even make a team one run better, you know, it's technically a million dollars. I mean, it's not quite that simple, but you know, that's that, that's that's the kind of stakes that you're playing with at this point. I, I mean, I think that the the closest answer I can get to that is how teams view and evaluate managers. And the job of a manager, I think that, and and in in some way this is, um, this this is is kind of a return to the way that we used to view managers as you know kind of the leader of men model, and you know in the book I talk about how if you look at all the tactical things that we're used to evaluating a manager for, whether he pinch hits the right guy or calls for the bunt at the right time or whatever. If we look at that and and we math out, okay, how how much value, how much extra value could be gotten if you had the perfect manager? And and the answer is really not all that much. And then if you also look at, you know, I, I did some some math around how managers help their players navigate the grind. And it turns out that, you know, you can if you look at, and I used plate discipline and kind of how plate discipline tends to erode a little bit over the course of a season, if you math that out, you can probably get more um, more value from helping players to just kind of, I don't know if it's stay fresh or rested or just kind of not wear down psychologically over the course of a long season where, you know, you're trading, you're, you're taking two planes every week and you, um, you spend a lot of time living in hotels and yeah, I know they're making $10 million. But that's, that's still hard to do. And there's so many different ways to bleed away value at the edges. And I found that, you know, teams could really, um, or that managers could actually have an effect that was fairly stable across years to where they they help their their players out. And then if you math out how much that's really worth, it's worth a lot and it's worth probably a little bit more than all that tactical stuff put together. So I think that 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 managers, not as button pushers, but as 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 managers of people in in the sense that you know your boss is a manager or something like that, um, and and seeing them in that way, is is probably the the place where teams could um, could actually get some value right now where they may not be getting it right uh, right at the moment. 
You've been listening to Russell Carlton. His new book is The Shift. Give him a follow on Twitter at PizzaCutter4. And of course, check out his work at Baseball Prospectus as well. Russell, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me on.